Hello, this is Sean. You're listening to the Never Heard of It podcast, and I am joined today by my co-host... Craig Moorhead. And we're here to talk about uh, some of the movies that may have fallen through your cracks. That's right. We've got an awesome movie today, and we've got a very, very special guest. I'm happy to welcome the author of the 2005 novel, Inamorata, the screenwriter of Stonehurst Asylum, Fear Itself, Windchill, Blackway, co-creator co-showrunner, co-everything of the Amazon series Red Oaks, and my boss, Joseph Ganjimi. <laughs> Joe, wow. thank you very much for coming on. Awesome. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I am never a person who feels like anyone's boss ever, so it's actually kind of <laughs> cool to be referred to as boss. Yeah. Well, Joe, I would love to start by asking you, because... <laughs> I don't really foresee an instance where we'll have another novelist on this show whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I know a little bit about your backstory. We've talked, but I, I don't know. Like, what, did you begin your writing career planning to do fiction? Or how did you kind of get into the uh, idea of being a writer at all? And then, you know, like, I, I am also obviously curious. I think our audience would be very curious to hear how that transitioned into screenwriting. But first, I don't want to overlook this novel, which... I have on my bedstand and, and dying to read, but um, I would love to hear about those beginnings. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I I was one of those freaks of nature who just, you know, figured out really early on that that's just, I just locked onto writing is what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. fiction writing, you know, from when I was like 10 or 12 or something. I mean, I think I wanted to be a visual artist first because my mother's an artist and I, I was a graphic designer and I think when I was doing lots of drawing when I was 10, things like that. And then at a certain point, I I got serious enough to go and take art classes, life study classes and stuff. And it was, and it was, gave me a headache and I hated it so much that I, <laughs> that I immediately just dropped any interest. And now I'm like a terrible artist, but I, I switched to reading and kind of caught the reading bug around 10 or 11. I remember my father went back to college. He'd never finished his college degree and he went back to college and finished his degree when he was 40. And he was getting a computer science degree or something like that, but he took a, a, yeah. f- a fantastic literature course and uh, fantastical literature. And he would read, you know, the stuff to my sister and I that he was uh, studying. And it was, you know, fantasy novels by Ursula Le Guin. And there was a C.S. Lewis novel in there. And there was, you know, and I was 10 or something, you know, when I could certainly old enough to read on my own, but I, he read to me. Right. And that, that kind of gave me the bug and I just became a voracious reader and then very quickly decided I just wanted to do this. I just want to tell, you know, I want to be a storyteller. You know, long before film was even a concept of something that I could write, I was just obsessed with writing story and wrote short stories in high school and went to, and was really into science fiction and went in, sort of was going to be a science fiction writer, I thought. Um, and I yeah. I went to a really famous science fiction workshop called Clarion, which is sort of like the Iowa Writers Workshop, but for the science fiction world. And, um, oh, wow. you know, like Ted Chang, who, who wrote this movie, who wrote the story that is Arrival, that's out right mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. doing very well. Like Ted Chang was the year after me at Clarion. And it was this graduate workshop out at Michigan State. And I took that and, you know, through my teen years, was writing science fiction and even sold a science fiction short story or two when I was a teenager. That's awesome. And then, you know, went off to college 
and was writing whenever I could. And I wrote a novel in college during my summer break when I was interning at DuPont and was really bored. That was kind of a Steve, <laughs> kind of a Stephen King knockoff. And I, and I wrote that and, and I was 19 and I eventually like sold that like years later that came out under wow. a pen name when I was in my mid twenties. And I have to ask real quick. Yeah. When you were interning at DuPont, were you on Team Foxcatcher? <laughs> yeah, actually, that would have made it much more exciting. I, um, I, I, you know, I, that's all I, I know about DuPont. DuPont, by the yeah, way, yeah, I it. actually live. I live not far from Foxcatcher, where all that was going. Right, on, yeah, going down because oh, wow. I, I live outside of Philadelphia, and uh, and and the other thing too, the little Foxcatcher aside, is that one time I was going to write a screenplay about him long before Foxcatcher. Oh wow! Yeah, uh, and so I would go to the courthouse and tried to get transcripts before he this I, I was gonna write about this guy before he murdered anyone. This was like Oh he, holy cow. Okay. He was a cra- <laughs> he was just like a crazy person and his family was trying to like freeze his assets and get him declared like incompetent so that other people would take care of it. And so I was going and and like trying to get these transcripts to read about that because I was gonna write about just a crazy air and then i never wrote but and then the lady the guy went bananas and shot someone and so it was like yeah. wow okay wow you could still do the the prequel though it sounds like that's what you've got i should i really yeah. should yeah anyway i'm sorry i just couldn't resist <laughs> but uh so yeah so like i you know so i was all fixated all through college and, and and i was publishing a little bit short stories and i wrote this novel and i that was the intent was to get out of college and publish a short story collection and then write my first novel and do, you know, like what everyone did in 19, that was the sort of dream in 1990. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got out and started doing just weird odd jobs to support myself. And around that same time, I was friends with a, a, a close friend of mine is a, is a novelist turned screenwriter. And he and I would hang out and kind of workshop each other's stuff and spitball and things like that and one day he was like gosh you know we both love films and we've always loved movies we, we should try writing a script and we went and like got a how to write a screenplay book from barnes and noble <laughs> and we like you know broke down the story and wrote this spec script and like sold it like got an option for it and Jesus, it was kind of yeah. this weird thing and then that sort of was what was the toe in the water for me with film and so it was just sort of a natural evolution of love of story. And I think that's still probably my primary focus. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I kind of don't approach it. You know, you guys went to film school and I'm sure then think of things much more visually. And, and I don't, I kind of come from it first, probably almost like a novelist, you know, I don't really dis- discern too much difference between stories in their early stage. You know, I, I published this novel in Amarada in 2004 and I haven't published a novel since, but it's every year it's sort of like, I'm going to, write a novel again and I right actually, i actually have an idea for one now that i swear i'm going to do <laughs> but we'll see you know I'm also good a little crazy busy like running a tv show which doesn't leave you a lot of time no doubt for side yeah. projects but uh yeah so that's how i got got Damn into TV. it and, you know and, and and found picked up and discarded agents along the way until i kind of found the ones that really were the right fit for me cool. who i've now, now been with for a while well hopefully they won't drop you once they hear this i know so, exactly um... <laughs> Now, I, I am kind of curious, and we, we do tend to sort of ask this question, like, what was your sort of relationship with movies? Sure. I mean, were you always watching movies as a kid and all that stuff, or what did you kind of gravitate towards? Yeah. Um, in those, and especially, I guess, like in that period of the 90s, I don't know, were you a, like a Pulp Fiction guy, train spotting? Did you kind of get swept up in all I, that? Well, I mean, I was swept up in it. I Maybe, 
I mean, I'm 46, so I think they were hitting me. Those movies were coming out. I was post-college, a little bit post-college, mm-hmm. so I'm a little was a little more fixed. I think if you know if those things had hit me at 16 or 17, they might have been life-altering. Yeah. Um, and I might have been like, wow, I'm going to Hollywood and doing this. Um, so they, they they didn't affect me like that. I mean, I just thought they were cool as hell. Yeah. I remember, you know, actually a, a movie that really kind of like blew the top of my head off around that era was The Crying Game. I remember yeah. Yeah. just falling hook, line, and sinker for it. I managed to see it without knowing any of the spoiler. I was just like totally immersed in along for the ride. I liked Neil Jordan. I'd seen some other things of his prior to that. And then I knew that this one was something special. You know, everyone sort of said this is his big breakout one. But it was great. And it was a great experience. And what I, it kind of opened my eyes from a narrative standpoint that like the strategy of putting your audience so into your protagonist's point of view that they experience the same moral, ethical quandary that in this case Mm -hmm. he does. And I just, that was, that never occurred to me that you could do that. And so that was just sort of, you know, that spoiler alert, that great moment where, you know, he suddenly realizes. (laughs) You don't know by now. Yeah. 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 You know, that, that moment where it's like, oh my God, this woman that I'm hot for is a he. And I remember just being like, oh my God, like I'm hot for her too, but but she's a he. How do like what? How do what? What do I do now? (laughs) Like, you know, you're just, you're in his shoes. And I thought that was just, kind of brilliant and talk about casting yeah yeah (laughs) i mean just incredible just incredible but you know so in the i was more of my movie formative years were the 80s and the sort of birth of the vhs and you know we would we my family didn't have a whole lot of money and so we didn't own a vcr for the first few years that they were available but you could rent them from video stores you could take them home for the weekend Mm -hmm. and so we would do that and i can remember you know, vividly in about 1982, one weekend, my parents saying like, okay, we're going to rent a video recorder. And you went and got this giant piece of equipment and took it home. And we were each allowed, my sister and myself, my, you know, my dad, my own, we we each got to pick a movie to bring home. And I brought home Blade Runner. And and, yeah. And so, you know, that started just my fascination with movies. And then my best friend, who's still my best friend, was kind of a great influence on the music side and movie side of just he just had a great instinct to kind of search out fringe stuff. And he was really into this book called the psychotronic book of film. You guys know mm-hmm. this book? It's I've heard of it. Yeah. It's yeah. This, I'm the same. I've never seen it, but I know. Of it. Yeah. yeah. It's incredibly cool ref. It's like a phone book and it's just, it was just this compendium of descriptions of just fringe and cult and weird <laughs> movies. And he would just crawl through this and then we would, find these things whenever we could at the video store <laughs> you know and sometimes it would blow up in our face and it would be something we didn't want to see i remember vividly no, going no. out to see cannibal holocaust as a 14 year old oh boy and, Jesus. and I, i've still never done that i deal. don't you, you don't want to you there's no reason <laughs> to see that. but i mean <laughs> yeah. we got up and we got up and walked out actually uh because it was wow because it, it was so upsetting and mostly because it has a lot of uh killing animals and not and not killing them like for food or anything softly just, yeah yeah killing them for for spectacle so you know we were just seeking out all that kind of bizarre fringy stuff and then just absorbing every mainstream thing you know the terminator and you know all the john hughes movies and you know anything that had a flash of boob in it which was a lot at the time there was a lot of flash yeah. of boobs so. better times i guess i don't know we even in, yeah, in pg movies i mean yeah. yeah yeah your odds were good yeah, yeah. that you were gonna get one so yeah i keep yeah. trying to get we keep trying to get toplessness into red oaks and 
And then, I know. And, and then we do a little bit, especially if it's David Gordon Green directing an episode, it winds sure. up in there. And then, you know, and then we get beat up uh, because we're in humorless, living in humorless times. So, Indeed. well, there's a lot of uh, bottomless male, bottomless male. So yeah. There's... Yeah. We get plenty of that. You're getting your recommended <laughs> daily allowance of <laughs> bottomless male. Yeah. Just think like 20 years from now, there'll be girls like, you know, it was just like, it was the early 2010s. So, you know, it, we yeah. were watching everything we could that had like a, yeah. a naked man from the Dude, waist down awesome. and it was a lot. So, yeah. yeah, somehow I don't, I don't know. Somehow I think women are more sophisticated. I don't think they do that. <laughs> that will never happen. No, yeah. no. no. Yeah. they like, weren't like me, stop. like going over to my friend's houses who had HBO and like staying up till four in the morning to watch, oh, yeah, to watch you best. know, like Yanks because there was a glimpse of a topless girl in it. <laughs> yeah. I know. So disappointing, really. Yeah. Why well, I'm kind of curious, like did the video store and kind of, I'm guessing maybe reading sci-fi then transitioned a little bit to reading horror, and I would assume Stephen King yeah. popped up at some point on your radar oh, in that yeah. era. Oh yeah, I mean, that was how the could great it not? Era. That was the great era of Stephen King. Yeah, through all, all you know, from eighty to to nineteen ninety is sort of his golden age and i read everything you know and so did that kind of that then worked its way into the film side was that first thing that you and your friends sold was that a horror script kind of it was it was a guy i'm trying to remember what it was i think it might have been a some sort of (laughs) vampire something vampire it was vampire surgeons (laughs) actually yeah better yeah so vampire surgeons um and uh by the and by the way his buddy of mine who i wrote it with went on to write minority report so he 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 had a nice oh wow film career but uh uh yeah you know i did i loved horror i loved sci-fi i loved genre stuff and that was sort of what i was cutting my teeth on and i was I, i worked in a science fiction and fantasy bookstore and I, you know, it was like my first job, like as a clerk. And, nice. and then after that, I worked in a video store, working at West Coast Video. So yeah, you know, I was just saturated in, in that kind of stuff. And then, you know, I was 15, 16, we were going out and seeing, we also started to go seek out art house stuff as it would come to Delaware. And then once we could drive occasionally, you know, we would drive up to Philly, uh, but we would see, you know, Jean de Florette and Man in the Spring. We'd see like any foreign film that came right. by um and then we would rent them also and we went through a, a Jean-Luc Godard phase where we were you know watching Godard films left and right and we watched a lot of horror too nice. I remember that was especially like gore horror was big mm-hmm. then and I I, I uh, I've since kind of lost my stomach for it as I've become old and squeamish but you know we would see anything that had cool horror effects that were you know, in Fangoria or something. So, so all those great John Carpenter movies are still, I mean, there's still, I mean, some of those are still to this day, my favorite movies. I just watched a making of Halloween and that, that movie's kind of perfect. I've seen it (laughs) a hundred times and, you know, the the thing is amazing. And even the fog, even his lesser movies are still pretty, pretty rad. Yeah. They all feel like his. Yeah. And it's, it's just, it's, you know, endlessly amusing to me now to see all these homages to the John Carpenter movie with whether it's stranger things or you know it follows or you know everyone's doing the synth soundtrack and yeah yeah yeah. you know the the dean kundi ripoff cinematography it's very cyclical yeah it is it is well i i was curious how because i really want to do the first movie i think you were credited as writing windchill on this show because like these are the kind of movies that i love for the show because it's uh I did not know about this movie until I met you. And then I'm like, holy cow, this has Emily Blunt in it yeah. from, you know, two, it was 2007, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah it, was, it was her, it was a really early movie. She, uh, Devil Wears Prada hadn't come out yet. 
she had done it, but it hadn't mm-hmm. come out yet. And she had just been in a movie, a little British movie um, that's amazing that I'm blanking on the name of right now. She's great. Though. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like, uh, yeah. but I, I love talking about those movies that have like, you know, someone who is at least a big star now, if not were at the time when they made these movie, you know, but it just for whatever reason didn't quite get out there. But um, Ashton Holmes is also in this, who I liked quite a bit from, uh, he was in Cronenberg's uh, History of Violence, correct? Yeah, and actually that was my bit of casting, was that I, I, su- I oh, suggested nice. him because we were trying to look for our guy, and we, I had just seen uh, History of Violence and thought he was really, you know, really impressive in it. Yeah, and of course, this was directed by Greg Jacobs, who yeah. you now work with and, and run Red Oaks, and he also directed uh, the Magic Mike sequel, which was great. Yeah, it was. And yeah. uh yeah, I was just kind of curious, like specifically with this movie, like how that relationship kind of came about, like how he got attached to this and how maybe your script got in his hands and kind of how that kind of came together. Yeah. Windchill, I wrote with uh, another buddy of mine. It's it's funny. It's It sounds like I'm this Mr. Collaborator, but I'm not usually. <laughs> I usually kind of am a solo act, but, uh, but uh, you know, uh, occasionally you just meet people who you click with and dig and it's you know, it's half an excuse just to hang out mm-hmm. and drink, you know, usually. Sure, sure, yeah. um, and so I have a good buddy named Stephen Katz in New York who wrote the movie Shadow of the Vampire and who awesome. most recently wrote, uh, was, a pro- you know, the other writer-producer on The Nick, oh, yeah. cinematic show The Nick. Mm-hmm. And, and he, you know, he wrote episodes of From the Earth to the Moon and, you know, he's a, he's a great guy. And Katz I had met because, <laughs> this is interesting, so, so my horror novel... My pen, pseudonymous pseudonym, my pen name, uh, <laughs> our, our novel that I wrote uh, in college uh, was eventually published, and it was published in kind of a big way, and it won a big horror award, and it it got bought by Sony, but I wasn't an established screenwriter yet, and so Sony wouldn't hire me to adapt it, and so they hired Stephen Katz to adapt it, and and Katz had been adapting everything, and you know he had done worked on The Alienist, and he had worked on Interview with a Vampire, and yeah. he was just sort of a really busy guy, and so they hired him, and he was just a very gentlemanly guy. He like called me up and said, "Hi, I'm Stephen Katz. I'm the guy who was hired to adapt your novel, and I just want to tell you I love your book, and I'm very excited to work on it." And it was just a really cool thing to do. Yeah. And then he and I kind of started hanging out and became buddies whenever I went to New York and hang out with him. So Katz and I always sort of riff ideas off of each other. And we were just talking one day on the phone and I was, we were just talking about ghost stories, which I love. And I said, you know, like, why is it always a house that's haunted? Why can't it be a, a stretch of road? Why can't it be a car? Why can't it be a vehicle? Why can't it be, you know, and, and he was like, wow, that's kind of a good idea. And then he, we sort of talked a little more and he said, you mind if I run with that? That's a good idea. And I said, well, no, I kind of like it too. Why don't we run with it together? So yeah. would, he'd come to Philadelphia. I'd go up to New York. We'd walk around. We'd kind of plot this thing out. Um, we went out with the spec and it didn't sell right away. And the studios didn't know what to make of it. And I actually had a studio say to us, I don't know how to make a movie this small. Yeah. Um, Isn't that hilarious, and, by the way? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, exactly. And it was it was Fox, actually. Yeah. But you know, this was long before Jason Blum and the micro budgeted model. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Now, now, no one would blink an eye. I mean, they would go like, "Wow, if we could pull this off, this would be amazing." You know, they want to do it with stuff like The Shallows or uh-huh. or any number of Jason Blum things. So that was the sort of what we did. We found producers interested in it and uh, pretty good guys and uh one of them is <laughs> no, no they're both they're both good guys. Uh, but um and then at some point someone slipped it to 
Section 8, uh, Clooney and Soderbergh's company. And um, a guy named Ben Cosgrove there liked it. And he showed it to his wife, who was working for Joe Roth at the time. And Joe Roth was like, yeah, I'll like basically green like this immediately. Because he was running at the end of his deal at TriStar. So he had a certain number of movies he just had to make. And he knew it could be cheap and everything. And meanwhile, you know, Section 8 had a, a long-standing relationship with Greg Jacobs because he has been Soderbergh's producing partner for 20-plus years. Yeah. So Greg read it and really liked it. Uh, yeah, so he and I met, and, you know, we hit it off and, and spent time on the set together and enjoyed, you know, and just kind of clicked as, as friends. And then, you know, we subsequently adapted someone else's book that was made into this movie Blackway and just stayed buddies over the years, and that eventually led to to Red Oaks just through that. Let's talk a little bit about Red Oaks. I'm sure most people, you know, if you just watch the show, you probably don't even think twice about it. But yeah, as, as I understand it, when we've heard the stories. This is based on a lot of Greg's life. When did you first hear, I mean, obviously I'm assuming like either he came to you with this idea or it's just like he was telling the stories or, or how did, I don't quite know the nucleus of how that kind of went from just something he did as a as a 20 year old to <laughs> wait a second this should be a this could be a great show like how did how did that happen yeah it was kind of a weird process i'm not i'm foggy on the details myself now i mean i think we'll just make up something yeah you know, i right? think basically yeah. <laughs> as you do when you're standing around on a cold set you know making windchill we're up in vancouver and we're freezing yeah. you just kind of talk about your lives and, and swap stories and we both were kind of he's a couple years older than me but we were both you know still children of the 80s and we would just swap funny stories and then you know as we were kind of casting around for something to work on we sort of said ah, maybe we could do kind of like a teen sex comedy sort of movie i think oh, we both had liked Adventureland a lot by greg matola uh-huh. and that was sort of a little bit of an inspiration like oh maybe we can make a movie like that or super bad like a little thing like that and then but not in a way where we were doing anything in a focused you know nothing was getting written down or done with it and then you know they they had the nick up and running and soda and they were looking around for other stuff to do and they said hey this tv thing's interesting and soderberg was like you know you should to greg you should really do something with those ideas and greg was like okay and soderberg is like, but you should like get a buddy to write it with you <laughs> and and greg was like and i think he proposed some other people like i'm like you know who some of his like soderbergh's buddies you know scott burns or something yeah and greg was like well no i you know <laughs> some one of my buddies so <laughs> so he uh he mentioned me and and soderbergh was cool with that and i'd known you know soderbergh produced Windchill, and so i'd known him for years and he was cool with it so i i just went up to new york with like a bunch of scribbled down notes and we just kind of hung out with soderbergh and sort of said this is kind of what we're thinking these are some of the characters we think, you know, in an archetype kind of way should uh-huh. be at the club. Soderbergh kind of said, that sounds good. And I remember collectively we came up with the names. Nice. And then, you know, I kind of went, I took the lead of kind of breaking the story and outlining it and, and seeing if we had a shape to the, for the pilot, you know. Mm-hmm. And, gotcha. and then we just, we went off and, you know, just wrote it on spec and, you know, and packaged it with David. And, it, and that was kind of a fun 11th hour thing because david literally came on board at the last minute wow so we went out with it and, you know and and got it up and running so uh yeah so that's that's kind of how it it happened but i mean it's not as autobiographical as you would think i mean only in the sort of roughest mm-hmm. w- way because 
you know, but we both had like a wheeler in our life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I literally had a, I literally had a friend named Wheeler. Oh, did he you? Okay. Like, but he wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't like this wheeler. Like he wasn't the pothead but, valet. He was just, right. I just like the name. His name is Wheeler. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I had, I had always had like a crush on my high school driver's ed partner. Nice. Um, and so I thought like that would be a cool plot line. You know, you just sort of borrow incidents from your life and then you completely embellish them and change them and do all that but uh we didn't have a getty in our, yeah. either of our lives thank god right um i think greg did have a girlfriend at one time who was an aerobics instructor and uh <laughs> you know sky is sort of completely made up but travis this season is sort of loosely inspired by a friend of mine named travis who is who is a bitter cynical film cineast nice uh, and does he know does he know this your friend no okay good yeah, he's a Facebook friend too. I haven't seen he's I haven't seen him in the flesh in twenty five years, but okay. I should tell him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before the cease know. and desist letter shows up, no. <laughs> yeah. I think I think he's he probably think it was cool that John yeah, Hodgman was John Hodgman. playing him. Yeah. And was this the first kind of outright comedy that you had written? Yeah. Yeah. That's a weird thing. Yeah, no kidding. That's a weird thing. I had done all my whole career prior was like dark stuff and windshield yeah, yeah. and horror and stuff like that. But I'd always kind of loved comedy and wanted to try it. But I, I just, you know, I, I just had this naive notion that you had to be like a guy who went and did like open mic stand up to write comedy. Oh, thank God. No. Yeah, yeah. I just thought like, Oh, well like, like I'm not that guy. I'm not a comedian. I was, I can't write comedy. And I just sort of talked myself out of it. And then at this point I was just sort of going like, God, I'm ready for a change. And I just, you know, I want to do something different and I have other, you know, aspects to my writerly voice that I want to explore. I think also just, you know, you get to a certain point where you just, it's brutal, just like killing people all the times in scripts. You know? <laughs> right. It's just like com- coming up with new ways to kill someone. It's just it's like every 10 kind pages. of not how you, yeah. yeah, it's not really how you want to spend your day. And, um, <laughs> there, I had kind of a low moment before things turned around the last couple of years where I was starting to sell TV stuff um, where like I was, the, the assignments that would come my way would be like, Oh, it's a reboot of Halloween. And it's going to be set in like in a, in a prison and you have to kill people every 10 pages. And I'd like write these treatments for the horrible people over at dimension films. And, you know, and I was just like, Oh God, like I'm 40 years old. I shouldn't, this isn't how I should be spending my time. So mm-hmm. You're like, yeah. I'm just writing a manual for serial killers yeah, to use just, one day. Like, this is what this is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like a good buddy of mine uh, produces those Final Destination movies. And so he was always like, he sends me those scripts like right before he makes them. And he's like, oh, here, we got this great sequence where like a girl's getting LASIK eye surgery. And like, <laughs> you just go like, oh, what are you doing? Like, just yeah. stop. Yeah. I don't know. The world's, <laughs> the world's gotten to be a, a dark place. That, that Walking <laughs> Dead thing that they did recently where they came back from the new season and just had that horrifying extended sequence where the bad guy walked around with a baseball bat and then beat two people to death. And I, yeah. I, I just, I just, I mean, I don't watch that show, but I, you know, just, it was Not in the zeitcast and I looked into it and I was just like, Oh man, I think maybe ISIS <laughs> is right about us. <laughs> like we are, we've just gone beyond the pale. If this is how we're, we, this is entertainment. <laughs> Indeed. They, they can't all be, Sweet, life-affirming movies like Heaven Help Us. <laughs> That's a really good segue. Uh, That's a great segue. Yeah. I aim to please. So, Joe, you suggested this movie Heaven Help Us, and 
I don't want to speak for Craig, but I do think, Craig, you mentioned that you had heard of this movie. I was not at all familiar with this. But it is a movie from 1985. The synopsis from IMDb, real quick, basically the logline is, a new transfer student to St. Basil's Boy Prep School tries to fit in while romantically pursuing a troubled young girl. It takes place in Brooklyn in 1965. It was directed by Michael Dinner, written by Charles Purpura. I'm not sure how to pronounce that, obviously. This cast, we've got some some 80s heavyweights here. we got Donald Sutherland, of course, John Hurd, uh, Andrew McCarthy, Mary Stuart Masterson, Kevin Dillon, the lovely Kevin Dillon, Wallace Shawn. Who else stood out here? Dana Barron, who I recognized from mm-hmm. National Lampoon's Vacation. I have uh, to throw out Stephen Jeffries because sure. he's the reason I know yeah. about this. From Fright Night. Exactly. He is absolutely a standout in the 80s for me. But also, I was very surprised to see uh, Yeardley Smith, yeah. the yeah. voice of Lisa Simpson. Patrick Dempsey, yeah. I can't leave him out. He had a very it's small a great role. cast. Yeah, it really is. It's a stacked cast for sure. I, I'm assuming, Joe, you probably watched this on VHS or at some point kind of close around to when it came out, I'm guessing. I saw this in the theater. <laughs> no kidding. Nice. Yeah. Wow. yeah, I saw this in the theater and, and uh, I just always really loved it. I just thought it was really a cool, you know, this came out in 85, so it's the same year as 16 Candles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that right? 16 Candles or 16 uh, Candles? 84. 84, yeah. 84. So this is right after. This is this is Breakfast Club year. Sure. Um, yeah. And, you know, obviously they were hoping to kind of draft in on that kind of coattails of those teen movies. But this is not in any way like any of those movies. I mean, it's no. closer to Diner. I mean, I don't think it's on the level of Diner, but it's it's in the spirit of Diner or, or Biloxi yeah. Blues or... Any of those kind of coming of age. Uh, yeah, Breaking Away. It's a little bit like Breaking Away. Sure. Um, apparently, Charles Purpura was a beloved screenwriting prof- prophet Tish until his death. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, I was looking him up a little bit and found a lot of online memorials to him. Well, I did love that on his IMDb, he's only got three credits, but yeah. the one after, well, it was <laughs> the same year as Heaven Help Us, was he did an episode of the CBS School Break special that was called... The day the senior class got married, which <laughs> just based on that title, I'm like, I gotta, I, what in the world could that be about? Yeah. Um, that sounds amazing. That's brilliant. Yeah, that's great. He also wrote uh, his other produced feature credit was Satisfaction, which is, I think, the, the yeah. debut of uh, Julia uh, Roberts. Roberts. Yeah. Now, do you remember, mm-hmm. did this movie, like, how much of a like word of mouth thing did this have? Did it just kind of come and go? when it was was out in the theaters then or do you kind of have a uh, a sense of how well it did or or you know i wasn't even... i wasn't real aware at the time of box office kind of stuff mm-hmm. i have a foggy memory of it i feel like i heard about it from siskel and ebert i feel like that's what put okay. it on my radar because i was an obsessive mm-hmm. siskel and ebert fan and i i seem to remember them speaking uh, about it and kind of fondly and liking it and and talking about how it was sort of a little gem and uh, i think that's what sent me to the the theater to see it but i you know it was certainly nothing that was in the zeitgeist or or that was particularly i mean i, I can't even imagine if there were commercials I mean, there might have been but yeah it was flying pretty under the radar and i think it quickly disappeared and and for a long time it's it's been out of print you know I, it's mm-hmm. a movie i've talked about for years and and given copies to people for years and and a lot of times i've uh-huh. had trouble getting my hands on copies i mean now in the, in the age of the internet you can get anything Whenever. But. Yeah, I'll say I, I watched it on YouTube, so yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. It's there. Yeah. 
Craig, what did what did you think of this movie? And like, so like, what was your knowledge of it going into it? Uh, again, not much. I I, I knew it. I, maybe again, this is another one that I kind of know from the poster. I was gonna say, it sounds like one. It's one that I kind of just remember for looking so paced paced together. <laughs> I don't know why that made it stick in my mind, but like, like I've definitely seen this video box many times. Yeah, so I mean, that's all I really knew about it, and then um, and then going into it. Yeah, I was a little worried that I had not, you know, heard more about it. I kind of figured this is going to be, uh, I don't know. I don't know what kind of sloppy seconds this is going to be. Uh, if, <laughs> if, you know, this is something that has not, you know, I, I don't know. No one seems to be talking about it. But yeah, I have to say for, for something that is as good as this movie is, I'm surprised it's not more readily available. I don't know. Especially with Kevin Dillon becoming a big deal. Well, exactly. On, it's it's know. basically an entourage prequel, right? So, yeah. Yeah, it just seems like it HBO would come is, out, with yeah. it. but it's it, but it really it's packed with with everybody. Like there's 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 somebody for everybody in this <laughs> movie. So yeah, I mean, I, I and I'm still puzzling over the the fact that Wallace Shawn is on the poster and not Donald Sutherland for some reason. <laughs> really? Okay. Well, maybe yeah. because we're this is the era of My Dinner with Andre, so maybe they sure. figured he was somehow more of a draw. He's going to pack him in. Yeah, and this was this was Donald Sutherland after his seventies. The heyday. You know, all his 70s heyday. And then, yeah. and then he kind of went into the wilderness for a while before returning is, I guess, recently kind of in the Hunger Games stuff. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah. That is true. Um, I do love his hair in this movie, though, oh, I have fantastic. to say. Sutherland's got the excellent hair, doesn't he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like a bit of a perm. Yeah, know. it is. It's it's great. And he has a very interesting choice of the way he plays that character. I I, I always kind of uh-huh. get a kick out of what he's doing there. Wallace Shawn, though, his scene is probably... It's probably the broadest scene in the thing, but yes. at the same time, it's, yeah. it's it is like a key, I, it never fails to make me laugh. Oh um, yeah, it's and, yeah, it is expertly played. Yeah. I've always heard about him. I've always heard that he doesn't think he's doesn't think that he is funny, and doesn't really know what makes things funny. <laughs> I remember reading an interview with him where he's just like, I don't I don't really get funny things. I just try and play them as best I can. I was like, man, yeah, like he really nailed that scene. Yeah, it's a it's yeah. a scene stealing moment, and it also it kind of sums up a lot of my feelings of about being raised Catholic. <laughs> you know, oh yeah, one scene. You know, I mean, it's 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 broad and crazy and over the top, but it's also smart. I mean, it comments in a in a very efficient way. Yeah, <laughs> on a whole, on everything that's dysfunctional <laughs> and sure. crazy about the Catholic Church. Well. Yeah, I was to say, I think you and I talked briefly about this, but, I mean, Craig, unless I'm really mistaken, you did not go to a Catholic school, correct? I did not. I was Presbyterian most of that time. Yeah, yeah. and I was Methodist. And, I mean, one of the things I, I wrote down when I was watching this movie is, like, I, I do kind of love being in this world because, in some ways, it, like, it really does feel extremely foreign to me, you know? Yeah. Like, I don't, you know, I don't have any kind of prep school experience either. So all of that was, was unusual. And then certainly being boys only. But one of the things I thought was, was most interesting about this movie was the tone. Because, you know, it's it's not every day that, that something is this funny as it genuinely is in a lot of moments. But also really, really brutal. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Brother Constance, played by... um. Uh, Where is he? Jay Patterson. Yeah. 
That dude, he's no joke. He means business. He is an evil, evil, he's nurse ratchet villain. level yeah. Yeah, villain. Yeah. You know, he's not necessarily completely alone at this school, although, you know, Donald Sutherland plays kind of, I guess, would be the, the headmaster. I don't know what you call yeah, him, sure. Joe. Maybe you can tell me. Um, yeah. But he's Brother Thaddeus, and, and he is, he's, you know, complicit in all this, but also a little more ultimately forgiving, not wanting to, to push it to that level of extreme physical violence. Yeah, but um, boy, I I don't know. I don't want to get too personal, but I hope your experience was nothing like. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, like this. It, it's uh, it's not. It wasn't. I mean, this is so. Yeah. So I wasn't. I wasn't altar boy. I mean, I can tell you, right. you know that. But and I and I, yeah. and I I I had this weird sort of bifurcated Catholic upbringing where I was most of the time. Most Sundays, I was going to sort of a super you know groovy guitar playing normal modern seventies. Catholic Church, mm-hmm. but then nice. once a month or so, and then eventually as I got older, I kind of fell under the wing of my grandfather who would take me to this church downtown that was like, basically was the group that Mel Gibson is sort of part of or was oh, raised wow. in, which is kind of like a traditionalist. Alcoholic. Yeah, dark. Um, but but <laughs> okay. they were fascinating. What was fascinating was that they, they still did the Latin Mass. They had special permission to do Latin Mass. So like oh, wow. I, I kind of wow. got a taste of like what it would have been like to be a Catholic in the thirties or forties. Mm-hmm. And yet I was also being raised, you know, by this sort of modern Catholic church. So but I, I was lucky enough. I never had the dark Catholic experience of being beaten, abused. Sure. Uh, but my uncles who yeah, all did go to Catholic high school in Northeast Philadelphia in the sixties saw this movie and were just like, yep, yep. Plenty of beatings, plenty wow. of, me- you know, plenty of mean nuns and who would beat you. And, you know, and you go like, wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Who took the screws? On your knees, all of you. And you will remain on your knees until the Joker comes forward. I'm sorry, man. I tried to warn you. You! Mr. Diamond, stand up, please. Perhaps you would care to share your comments to Mr. Caesar with the rest of the class. I said I was sorry I didn't tell him that he didn't have any screws brother did you take caesar's screws mr dunn no brother mr dunn there's something you should know about me i'm not a man who enjoys violence in fact i find i get much better results when i use patience and this mr dunn is patience mr dunn took the screws i don't know brother brother maybe i should come back some other time oh no please stay I'm about to show you how patience triumphs over impudence. What I liked about the movie is that it would have been very easy to make sort of a Catholic bashing movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it smartly didn't go down that path. You know, it's it's a classic newcomer to a to a broken institution movie. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And often the newcomer is destroyed by the institution. You know, if it's sure. if it's if you're if you're Jack Nicholson, you know, mm-hmm. at the end you end up lobotomized and the institution beats you. But yeah. in this case, you know, I like that this it has this – it sort of puts a worldview where this institution can change and kind of purge itself of one of its bad members. And I thought that was kind of cool. I like that. But I, I agree with you, Sean. Like, it's a punishingly sad movie. I had forgotten, you know, how sad the Mary Stuart Masterson storyline is. Mm-hmm. You know, with her father who you don't know what's the – I still – I've seen this thing a dozen times. I still don't really know what happened to him. 
Okay, well, that was my one question with the whole movie is, yeah. um, let me just real quick, I want to just kind of, yeah. like for those who haven't seen it, just the basic nutshell of, yeah, yeah you got Andrew McCarthy's walking into this school. He's a tra- transfer student. Yes, his parents, I think, have somewhat recently died, and he and his sister are now living with his grandparents. Yeah. And this is the era where, I think this must have been the year, if they're factually correct, that the Pope visited New York City. Yeah. So you've got... Andrew McCarthy's grandmother, well, Andrew's definitely going to grow up to be a priest, and if with any luck, he'll be the the next pope. You know, yeah. <laughs> like one of, she's she's one of those. Like, um, which is just that that again, like blows my mind to even think about like other like kids growing up to even think about being priest or yeah. a pope. Like, it's so crazy <laughs> to me. But um, so he walks in, and basically the the, the main click of the school involves uh, Kevin Dillon's character Rooney, who's kind of like the airhead bully, and but not like that's not quite fair. But he's the guy that's always pushing the teacher's buttons. He doesn't do his homework, you know. He doesn't take any of it seriously. He, he's certainly not going to become a priest, probably. And then there is Caesar, who's the husky kid. <laughs> there's there's always a husky kid. Always a husky. Bit kid. of a nerd. Love that character. He's great. And so he's sort of the one that, by default, Andrew McCarthy has to kind of spend time with that first day of school because nobody else, like, you know, everybody else is in their clique. And then, you know, Patrick Dempsey's kind of in the group there on the side, but he doesn't have a whole lot going on. And then, yes, uh, was it Stephen Jeffries, right? Played Williams. Yeah. By by far my favorite character of the whole movie, I think, (laughs) is a uh, chronic masturbator. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess you guys probably know better than I did, but I, I was looking through his his filmography and, and quickly realized that, oh, he's an adult film star now. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Various pseudonyms. So I'll let you go look that up, Craig, and, and spend a couple Say hours. What? Um, wow. No, I had no clue. I know. It's nuts. And so there is a, what do you call it, like a soda shop, basically, yeah. that's next to the school or very, like, on the same block as the school, that all the all the guys go there. And Danny, uh, Mary Stuart Masterton's character, is sort of running the shop because, yeah, her father is a bit out of the equation. You get a little bit of the, the love angle between her and Andrew McCarthy's character. But then, yeah, towards the end of the second act, they show up at the soda shop The cops are there, and her father is being let out. I don't think he was in handcuffs, or was he? I seem to think he was, but but I don't think, yeah, I don't think we actually saw him. I I assumed he was for some reason, but I didn't see, like, they weren't in the frame, so I don't remember that. Do you have any idea what happened, like, why he's he's being taken away, and she's basically saying that they're going to turn over the assets of the shop? to uh, Danny's mother. I thought it was um, he was incapacitated in some way yeah, through the whole right. movie and that what was the, it was being shut down because of it was a uh, you know his daughter because of the fact that his daughter this was was a high school you know wasn't in school. Right. And it was okay. it was more of a child endangerment kind of situation and I and I thought oh, that was okay. the impression I was getting was that they were just sort of the authorities were kind of swooping in to fix this sad dysfunctional family situation not that anything criminal was going on that that was how i always kind of well i didn't yeah i wasn't sure i was like okay is he being taken to like an uh like the, the looney bin or like a you yeah. know some sort of treatment center i mean it definitely what matters most is the implication that the the guys at the school kind of influence this um, right i think anyway right is and that's also kind of the end of of her character arc isn't it yeah i mean and that's pretty it was kind of gutsy. interesting um mm-hmm. yeah totally you know to, to just sort of end on such a dark heavy note 
Um, and that's partly why I love this movie mm-hmm. is that it, that it does that, you know, in the midst of this comedic coming of age movie. Well, and I was going to say almost because of that, by the end of this movie, I was kind of looking at this as if it's actually like Kevin Dillon's story in a lot of ways. Yeah. Because he dominates so much screen time, and then he gets the vo- he gets the credit voiceover. He gets yeah. to tell what happened to everybody, and it's great. Like I, I mean, like it's so not needed. Yeah. But uh, he just like first of all, like he says the very offensive yes word that rhymes with maggot like a dozen <laughs> times in the first five yeah. minutes. And like, I know. Yeah, it feels weird to be to seeing that in such heavy use now. Yeah, but man, it reminded me so much of being in like seventh and eighth grade that like my best friends, my best friends, <laughs> spent ninety percent of their time in of their language like calling. We just called each other homosexuals. Yeah. The whole like that yeah. was it. Like that was just how you talk to each other. It was so ridiculous. Yeah. Well, I, I almost thought I don't know if you guys felt this, but in that voiceover at the end, I almost felt like they made a point of having him say, you know, he says the word faggot a bunch of times. And then yeah. he says, uh, you know, he go what he ends up going on to become a uh, working in a hairdresser as a right. shampoo boy, and yep. he says, and I working around a lot of funny guys, and I I almost mm-hmm. wondered if they were sort of in a clumsy way trying to make a linguistic point of like when he's saying this sort of derogatory term all these other times, it's not it's so disconnected from. Mm-hmm. It's, a reference yeah, to homosexuals nothing. that when he actually is talking about homosexuals, he just calls them funny guys. You know what I mean? Like, like, <laughs> like I didn't even I, know what the name, what the word meant in a way. Yeah. And, and right. I, I mean, yeah. and that was very, I mean, I don't want to, apo- I don't want to be apologist for our insensitivity in the eighties when we were using that word, but I had the same experience, Sean, is that that word was kind of bandied around a lot, but it, it was really disconnected from any actual thought of homosexuality it's just sort of which doesn't excuse it uh but it's but it's sort of interesting the way language gets uh yeah uh, manipulated and it's not a change i think any of us will really miss although i will say it was like nostalgically you know funny to me to hear him like (laughs) repeatedly but even like beyond that like saying like uh oh i bet you're gonna go to queen's college aren't you and you know and like when uh one of the priests is giving a sermon and says the word fruitfully. He's like, hey, hear that? He's talking yeah. about you. Fruitfully. Yeah. Get it? And it's yeah. just like, it's such like basic level, just nonsense. Yeah. And he's like the only insult. one who's really obsessed with that at all. The only yeah. one. Yeah. But it, it dominates his dialogue. And like, I actually, I don't know that I've seen that much of Kevin Dillon outside of Entourage and like him as an adult actor. And I'm, I'm sure I've probably seen him in smaller things, but this was definitely the only thing that I can think of where he had like a major role. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I thought he was great. I mean, I thought he was really, really good. Yeah, I did too. I kind of like his performance better in this than I do his performance in Entourage. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean this, this is still an outsized character, but it, it is, it's a little less cartoonish. Yeah. Uh, I think, I mean, this, sure. mm-hmm. this character he plays really feels genuine. <laughs> like someone who I believe probably, Charles Perpera knew. No, it's well written for sure. Here's here's the real unfair question though. Do you think they tried to get Matt Dillon first? <laughs> uh, would Matt have been too old or too? So, so well, I think I looked it up. Yeah. Kev, Kevin was twenty when he made this. How old is Matt? The older? Yeah. Who's I, the older I, I think he would be yeah. older. Yeah. yeah, he's definitely older. Yeah, so maybe he was aged out, but I'm sure they probably 
tried. Yeah. <laughs> They're so alike. I mean, they sound so identical to me in a lot of ways. Well, I kind of feel like that was, yeah, that was their, that was their ace in the hole. Well, they're actually only a year apart, apparently. So, yeah. Oh. No huh. kidding. Yeah. You know, you bring up an interesting little, here's a little bit of fun movie trivia and book trivia. You see, you know, this is set in 65 and they're talking about uh, the Pope coming mm-hmm. to visit. And I believe that's also mm-hmm. going on at the same time as Rosemary's Baby. They also refer to the Pope oh, yeah. coming to New York. Oh, right. And it's and it's sort of going on in the background of the story. So it's nice to think that this was happening, Heaven and Help Us was happening in Brooklyn and up on the Upper West Side, Mia Farrow was being <laughs> impregnated by the devil. We could cut these two together, probably. There's a lot of, you yeah, probably there's a lot of Catholicism yeah. <laughs> happening, and there's a lot of, yeah. I'll look forward to your supercut, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Sweet. It's on the way. What kind of stands out to you comedically in this thing? Because I, I think there's like a good handful of scenes. We already talked about the Wallace Shawn one, but that literally is the only scene that he's in. And that, that's a great yeah. one. Like it's, it's the, uh, the dance between with the girls school and the boys school coming together. Yeah. And again, loved Williams so much. I mean, when he's doing all I know to call it is when he's being an altar yeah. boy and helping the priests give communion. <laughs> That he, like he's about to pass. Like I think he does kind of fall yeah. down with just because like, he's walking he, he along and like all he's like, looking at those girls as they're putting their tongues out for the host, so and he's it's just too much for him and it blows his circuits because he's so <laughs> sexed right. up. And then that was, that was yeah at the dance. Yeah, during that Wallace Shawn speech where he's telling them that they will be filthy beasts <laughs> if they yeah. uh, give in to the lust inside <laughs> yeah. them. Like the first time they make mention of the girls from, you know, St. Mary's or where they're like, he like jumps out of his chair almost like he's like a dog, yeah. like in heat that has to be like on the lead. Like it killed me. I was laughing so hard. At yeah, that. Like, he, that was great. Yeah, I, I really like the scene in the pool where they're all standing in attention and that and that brother is giving that bizarre speech about how the communists yeah. are coming to kill Catholics. I thought that yeah, that was that really was funny. great, and then just you know <laughs> the great lowbrow punchline of them all jumping in and they're all naked, and there's just lots of dudes' asses, which is always good for a laugh. I know, um, <laughs> yeah, and oh, and as yeah. particularly how Caesar kind of creeps up to the water like and gingerly <laughs> gets into the water, which is always yeah funny. Well, he's like blowing his nose during the whole speech that that coach is. Yeah, I, I thought Dude. that was. He's like buck naked, but he's got a handkerchief. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering where that came from. You you don't want to know. Yeah, yeah. Both of those are great. I have to say though, uh, the thing that really caught my eye in this is uh, when they when they go out, they, they they Kevin Dillon tries to set up an evening where uh, he and Caesar can uh, make out with some ladies, <laughs> which is. Uh, Totally foiled by a, a, a bridge and a boat. And also, Larry Bud Melman. Is the, is uh-huh. the, yeah. In, it was the bridge tender. <laughs> and I was like, I don't think I've ever seen him in an actual movie no. before. And and like, this was just so, I, I don't know. It was just so matter of fact. Like, well, there, there he is. Like, this is not a, a funny uh, cameo. This is just because like, well, he's got a great face. We'll put him in there. And, I'm glad like, you yeah. mentioned that because like that, I mean, this was also the era of... Letterman was hugely mm-hmm. influential yeah. in my life. And, um, you know, and when we finally did get our first VCR, probably around 83, I mean, like literally I'd set the VCR every night to record Le- Letterman and then I'd watch it after school the next day. And this was the year of Larry Bud Melman. And it was like, you know, seeing yeah. him pop up in this movie just made me love the movie all the more, <laughs> you know. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think, I mean, that whole scene sequence, I thought, was just great from start to finish because, I mean, it, it packs so mm-hmm. much in, right? Mm-hmm. So you get you yeah. get the girl that you think, like, okay, Kevin Dillon, like, there's just enough hope that he might <laughs> actually get laid there. Yeah. And then, nope, like, the girl from National Lampoon's Vacation just barfs all over it his barfs shoulder. Barfs over his yeah. <laughs> Perfectly timed barf, mm-hmm. I thought. I thought yeah. that was really effective. Yeah. And it's not the last time she barfs, which that was also good. A, I, I also thought it was <laughs> it was funny that Kevin Dillon, to the point that we were talking about him using the word faggot in a non-homosexual way, yeah. he talks, he calls mm-hmm. Caesar and Yeardley Smith faggots while they're making out with each other in the car. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was great. Yeah. But then I got to say, like, I was thinking about the fact, because you know that car is toast just by how much, like, he's Kevin Dillon's got his dad's car. You know, and it's got new electric leather seats, right? So they set it up perfectly. You know that car is toast. Like, this is the 80s. You can't have a movie without, like, the dad's car getting messed up. By the way, we're going to do that in Red Oaks, right? I know. As you're saying that, I'm making a note that we got to do that. Yeah. It's such a great uh, 80s trope. (laughs) Boy, I did not expect that to go down the way it did on a drawbridge and like just the the <laughs> no. extent of damage to that car was great like that it, yeah. it yeah. really like I was like it oh was. they they raised the bar on the destruction of the the dad's car in this in this scene here yeah who one other little comedic thing that I loved was when he referred to himself in the third person and he would say uh well he said something <laughs> See- about Caesar don't don't work with morons or something like, yeah. something like that it's great <laughs> Oh my God! Yeah, <laughs> I mean, so this make th- th- yeah. this movie makes you lament the days when you could make a feature film that was essentially an ensemble, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and, oh, yeah. and you know, Sean, we talk about it all the time on Red Oaks about how Red Oaks is an ensemble, and that's what's great about it. But you know, you just can't do it. I mean, I guess I mean you know the Hangover movies did it, yeah, kind um, of, kind of, but they're sort of the Wes Anderson the gets to do it, and that's about it. <laughs> Yeah, and he's off, sort of off doing yeah. his own kind of unique yeah. thing, but but it is great, and you know, and also it's it's rare that you can have a protagonist as low key as Andrew McCarthy in this. I mean, he's very much a sort of like our protagonist in Red Oaks. I mean, he's this sort of calm center who just mm-hmm. does a lot of observing and a lot of sort of acting with his eyes, uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, yeah. and I love I love that. I'm you know I'm a sucker for that kind of. Well, I started thinking like, yeah, okay, if this was being made now, you would have to spend that first act establishing what these guys want. Like Andrew McCarthy yeah. has to clearly want oh, yeah, to yeah. – he's got to want to be a priest, you know? Yeah. And then that's got to be at the forefront. Even thinking yeah. about like super bad, which I love and I don't think it's really forefront, but it is like, dude, this is the last like month we have to get laid before we go to, to college, right? Right. So, yeah, it was nice here that, that that really wasn't the case. Like, I mean, I don't think of, like, a plotty thing. It felt like it was only, it was like Kevin Dillon saying to Andrew McCarthy, like, can we just be friends so I don't have to kick your ass every day? Like, that was, like, yeah. the extent of, like, what anybody <laughs> wants. And that, yeah. to me, yeah. yeah, when you're dealing with young characters, that that is real. Like, that is reality. Like, most young people do not have, like, mm-hmm. specific things that they are, like, pining for. Other than like, yeah, lust or you know some material thing, which doesn't necessarily make for drama. Yeah, you know? some short term. Yeah. yeah, you know, and Andrew McCarthy is is just he and his little sister are sort of getting over this 
massive <laughs> yeah. off-screen tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they lost both their yeah. parents, and that's that, and they had to move to a new city. And and I thought, you know, there's something cool about the fact that it comes to the end. I don't know. I don't know that I could tell you anything he's learned from this adventure. Sure. He's just endured a little bit, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah, and I guess he's, yeah. you know, he's found a group of, you know, he's found a, a place to belong. I guess that's yeah. You know, he found some, his pe- some people to belong yeah. with. Yeah, and I guess that's that's the uh, the entirety of it. But uh, <laughs> I will say though, like, um, boy, that was a really satisfying moment to me though when he, when he hits Brother Constance and like how that oh, whole yeah. scene played out. Like, um, yeah, you know, it, and it's one of those that like in hindsight, it's like, oh, it's obvious, like that had to happen, right? Yeah. But at the same time, it's like I I, I felt like it, it, you know, it it didn't feel like something that I'm like, okay, here it is, this is when it's going to happen, like this is coming, like you know. Here we get the triumph moment. And uh, yeah, just all that stuff was handled really nicely, I thought. Yeah. And you just hate that brother Constance, you know, from that earlier scene where he humiliates them and he, oh, he makes, yeah. you know, he makes Caesar walk, you know, crawl around the room and then he makes, he's like whacking Andrew McCarthy's hands. And that's just such a painful, powerful scene. And it's just, it's just a great yeah. lesson in how to make a villain really villainous. Yeah, it is. But in a, in a completely grounded, naturalistic way that's sort of consistent with the environment that he's in. What I like about this movie also is a little glimpse into Catholicism. I like that, you know, I like that it doesn't just sort of tar it with a black brush and at the end it's just like it's all awful. I mean, I like that there was sort of a, a semi-redemptive ending. But at the same time, I thought it, it does this sort of stealth thing of really capturing this sort of weird sadomasochistic side mm-hmm. to Catholicism mm-hmm. that I think, you know, it's probably a big reason I'm not a Catholic anymore. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's just, you know or, or and raising kids, I haven't introduced my kids to it because it's, it's the thing that is like, there's plenty that I like about the Catholic church that's interesting and the beautiful cathedrals and the liturgy is cool and, and fascinating and the stories are fascinating and all that I'd love my kids to be a part of, but I, I'm I'm scared of exposing them to that sort of, you know, confession booth. Yeah, just that cel- that celebration yeah. of of suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, everything in its iconography mm-hmm. to, you know, to that 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 Wallace Shawn scene is just it's funny. You're laughing, but it's horrifying too because it's sort of, you know, tainting this yeah. sort of innocent thing with the you know the darkest of stuff and you know and it really right. it it screws with people's heads. I mean, I, I heard Mel Gibson promoting Hacksaw Ridge on the Colbert show. And he talked about, he was talking about, you know, the afterlife and how you, well, you know, the, the more you do good works in this life, that's the less time you have to spend on the meat rack in the next life. <laughs> Jesus. Like, oh my God. Like I felt so bad for him. I actually felt yeah. bad for him. Cause I was just like, yeah. it sucks to have that in your head. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's just, yeah. It, there's just this sort of element of torture to it. And uh, I think this movie within this sort of little coming of age story does a great job of kind of capturing a quality of the, the, the sort of dark culture of Catholicism apart from what everyone else does. Everyone else does the priests molesting stuff. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. rightly so. There's a lot of drama to be found there. But that's what everyone focuses on. And I thought th- this movie does a good job of focusing on another aspect that it. I think it does a good job of criticizing, but also, you know, fairly not exaggerating or being right. too dismissive of it either. Because I think, you know, at the end, <laughs> these kids, it's also sort of, it's a little bit of a nostalgic, like, 
wow, it looks like it would be pretty fun to go to that soda shop. Right. And hang out with your buds. Oh, man. Right. Yeah. And I would, I actually wouldn't mind wearing a skinny black tie every day to school. Like, Dude, they look they, like they, FBI yeah. agents. It's awesome. They look yeah, kind of cool. Like, <laughs> yeah. And those cars are pretty awesome. And like, you know, and, and man, John Hurd seemed like kind of an awesome teacher. Yeah, cool <laughs> you know, yeah. so so I thought it did a nice, fair and balanced portrayal. Well, one yeah. interesting little tidbit that I'll share, and then we can wrap this up. But speaking of John Hurd, who yeah, we haven't talked a ton about, but he he's sort of the newest member of the faculty, and he definitely has a conscience, if you will, <laughs> about yeah. beating the crap out of kids. <laughs> But um, apparently on the Wikipedia page, it says that he, he claimed that he didn't work for about two or three years after this movie because on set, he was talking with one of the actors and said something about how weird it was that they had a Jew directing a movie about a Catholic boys' school. And <laughs> the director happened to be sitting behind them. It's crazy. I mean, when you read the quote, he's like... And then the director, Michael Dinner, I think that was his name. He was sitting, like, like, come on, you don't remember the director? Like, that's, you're still doing like a backhanded thing right now. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know if that's actually true that huh. he got blacklisted by Michael Dinner or not. Wow. <laughs> that was kind of funny. <laughs> I didn't realize that Michael Dinner was Jewish, though, but that's kind of really cool. It's an extra added cool thing that, you know, yeah. if he is Jewish, then yeah. he, I mean, because it's, it's so loving in its details and accurate and feels so real. And if this was something, yeah. a world that Michael Denner had zero experience with, that's all the more impressive. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. and I, I wanted to say, too, that he was one of the producers on The Wonder Years. And, like, that makes total sense to me uh, tonally yeah. in, in relation to this movie. And, um, yeah, good for him, man. He also apparently directed an episode of The Get Down. Yeah. I don't know if you guys watched that, but that kind of blows my mind because uh, these two things uh, don't seem very much the same at all, aside from being a, a very large ensemble. He, he's also one of the main directors and sometime writers on uh, on Justified, which is about, is about oh, yeah, day yeah, yeah. and night as this as you could be. So uh, Well, yeah. and then uh, the ultimate day or Good night is that he directed Hot to Trot, the talking horse movie with Bobcat Goldthwaite. In uh, 1988, wow! Which I saw, I saw that in the theater. <laughs> really? <laughs> that, yeah, <laughs> on a date, no less. I think. Really? In, uh, wow! Middle school. Yeah. Oh, kind man. Of. And now she's your wife. <laughs> no, she's not, and it was not a great date. Yeah. <laughs> her little brother came along, if I remember correctly, and I did, I did not like that little kid. Wow, that's kind of awesome. And I don't think I liked that movie. I'm sorry to say, but uh, no, no. no. <laughs> The talking horse genre has has died down a little bit, sadly. Sadly, uh, the great Michael Dinner, though. But before but this, time. Is, this is yeah. this is a, a little gem on his filmography. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for suggesting it and uh, for coming on the show, yeah. Joe. Really My appreciate pleasure. it. Been fun it's to great talk talking with you guys. And uh, right on. It's fun to be to come over on this side as a fan of the podcast and then to come across to penetrate the membrane and actually be part of it one is <laughs> a little trip is yes. a little trippy. But uh in a good way. Cool, cool. Well, yeah, if you want to check this movie out, um it's definitely floating around on D V D and then it's on uh YouTube and yeah, Red Oaks is, is out there on Amazon. Season 2 is available now. Season 1 has is, is been out. And definitely go check that out. It's been a lot of fun to work on. And it, it's definitely got its fans, which is, is always great to hear. And uh, as Craig and I have talked before, 
even if you don't care about what me and Joe are doing, the cast is so good. Yeah, so, fantastic. <laughs> go watch yeah. them. It's a, yeah, amazing ensemble. Yeah, as always, you can find us online, neverheardpodcast.com, and please make a suggestion. And we'll be back next week with some more stuff. All right. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I got. It's good enough.